0: Remember, Jesus is wrapping up his ministry. He's on his way back to Jerusalem for the final time, for the final week of his life. He's still in the region of Perea. He's still speaking uh, to a group of Pharisees, a group of Sadducees and scribes, and the people of the region uh, as he moves towards Jerusalem. He's already dealt with the issue of money. He's talked to us about How God views divorce and the sanctity of marriage. And he really is picking life lessons. Think of these things. These are things that, you know, these are the big things that people think about. And so Jesus is now going to move to something that is so important for us because it really is a picture of what happens when we die. What happens when we die? That is a monumental question that virtually every person on the face of the earth will ask at some point in time. What happens when we take our last breath? What is it that awaits us? You see, some world religions believe that you take your last breath and you're going to come back the following week in a either greater or lesser sense, you'll be reincarnated. Maybe if you weren't good, you're coming back as a bug. If you were really good, maybe you're going to be a little better person. But you'll go through these endless cycles of reincarnation until one day you finally become part of that cosmic consciousness and your candle is snuffed out and you you become one with God. Some people believe that. Some people believe that there is a God who is very capricious. He sits in heaven and he weighs out simply your good deeds and your bad deeds. And if you have too many bad deeds, then it's off to hell. And too many good, better deeds, good deeds, you you might get to intervene there for a while in a holding place called Sheol, sheol. For the Christian, maybe you're going to be in purgatory if you're a Catholic. If you're a Muslim, maybe Allah will be good to you and send you to paradise. People ask this question. Billions upon billions of people ask this central question What happens? Fortunately for us, Jesus Himself speaks to this very issue. And he's very specific about what happens when we die. You see, you're all going to live. Every last person is going to live in eternity. There is only the question of where and with whom. That's the question that Jesus addresses from verse 19 to verse 31. Would you pray with me? Father, we have come as your children, as your people. Lord, the ones that one day, because of our faith in Christ, our belief that he died for our sins and rose, has provided forgiveness for all of our failures, that one day when we take our last breath, we who are here who believe this, believe that we will live eternally. You, Jesus said that we would have eternal life if we believe in you. But what happens to those who don't? And so, Lord, we pray if there's anyone here today that's not made that decision, that choice, by faith to live with you, then there is another choice. We pray no one makes it. Speak to us now through your word, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. You see, making the wrong choice while you're here on earth can leave you living in the lap of misery. Not luxury, misery. Not with all your friends who partied hardy, misery. Not with the alternate place other than heaven because that's these little fat cherub-looking babies flying around everywhere because you don't want to go there. Utter misery. Verse 19, Jesus, using a story to illustrate this, these are the words of the Lord himself. For there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple. Now, purple-dyed cloth was an invention primarily of the Phoenicians. They used a very specific type of murex shell that took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them to be cracked open in a very tiny little organ, squished, that created that purple dye, and it was reserved only for royalty. If you had a purple garment, you were rich and famous, clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day, Fine linen would be the difference between what you and I would call a burlap sack, the stuff that John the Baptist wore, the camel hair, and something that was smooth to your skin, that was wonderful to wear. This man had it all. He fared sumptuously. In other words, he ate like a king. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his gate. Two very different men, story of haves and have-nots, one who had and one who didn't, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, and moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. You have two very different people in view here one we could say had everything one dwelt in radiant splendor one owned a a mega yacht had billions we could modernize this one lived in a very large home sequestered from reality could purchase anything and everything that he wanted lived a life of luxury, worried about nothing, including something he should have worried about, and that was his eternity. And you have the opposite of that. You have someone who was effectively homeless who sat outside the gate of that mansion. And every day, That rich man came home, driving his Lambo Gallardo, smoking his $45 cigar, going to sip his $2,000 a bottle brandy. Just making it real for you. And there was that same homeless guy no clothes no shoes no food dying of an incurable disease and the only one that cared about him was the rich man's dogs isn't it crazy how the world tries to divide us into two categories the haves and the have-nots people with the people without And yet, from heaven's perspective, those roles are often reversed as they are in this particular passage. You see, it looks like on this earth there's the haves and the have nots. But can I tell you that eternity is a whole lot longer than your life? And it matters what you do with that eternity more than it matters what you do with your 80, 90, maybe 100 short years. There is a single decision that changes your eternal destiny. And so this story that has in it one of the deepest and most cardinal truths of the human condition, life is not fair. Anybody figured that out? Life's not fair. It doesn't deal the same cards to everyone. Rich people get sick and die. Poor people end up with everything. Strong people end up weak. Weak people end up strong. Life is not Fair. But there is something that squares away the inequities of this life. And it is our eternity. That's where God says, you may have had it rough while you were on this earth. But enter into my kingdom of rest. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Here's your mansion. Amen. That's the picture that the Bible paints. You see, the world paints, you have in this life, and the more you have, the more you die with, the better your life was. That is a falsehood. It's actually a ploy of the enemy to get you to focus on the things of this earth. It doesn't mean that things on this earth aren't important in their own way. It doesn't mean that they don't matter at all, But what it does mean is there's something that matters far more. And that is where you're going to spend eternity. You see, the rich man died thinking he was all that. The poor man died knowing that he was nothing. Never amounted to anything. And notice that the rich man is going to receive exactly what he had earned. Judgment and the poor man will receive what he had not earned, which is God's grace. It's a beautiful picture of the offer that's made to all. Verse 22 points us to these two very different destinies. So it was that when the beggar died, he was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. Now I would ask that you track with me very accurately through this passage. Abraham's bosom. Why would it be named after Abraham? Well, it's because Abraham spent some time there. The rich man also died and was buried. And notice being in torment in Hades. Hmm, that kind of sounds like two different places to me. And he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. The rich man had everything and died, and he is in Hades. Doesn't mean that all rich people can't be saved. Get that one out of your head. It's not true. Not accurate. The Bible doesn't say it. But Jesus does say it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Why? Maybe he's worried about his riches. Sometimes they become a stumbling block to them. But notice this. So that he cried out and said, Father Abraham. Now why would you call Father Abraham, Father Abraham? A couple of things. You're Jewish and you recognize exactly who the covenant was made to by God. Abraham was the father of a multitude, was he not? He was actually the progenitor of all of the Jewish people. They are of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in flame. You noticing some things here? Both are very much alive. Both have complete understanding of who they are. Both have feeling. Both can understand pain and joy. They're very alive. But they've died. They're alive in eternity. But Abraham said, Son... Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus, evil things. And now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all of this, circle that, underline it, highlight it. Between us, between us and you, between Abraham and his bosom and Hades, there is a great gulf. The Greek word there is kosma, chasm. It actually is exactly the same as we would say gash or wound. It's a deep, bleeding wound that's between us. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those who pass there to us. And then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. In other words, send him back to the living. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses. So when you read your Bible, the first five books are written by? Moses. They're called the Pentateuch. That is the Jewish Torah. They're the most important books. They contain the law, everything that needed to be done, all that needed to be a practice for someone to be right with the Lord. In other words, God's saying through Abraham, who's now speaking, well, they already have Moses, they have the prophets. That would be the remainder of the Old Testament, save roughly eight books, depending on how you actually categorize Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and the Psalms. They already have Moses and the prophets. In other words, let them hear them, or you could make this modernized by saying they ought to read their Bible. I've already spoken on these things. I've already told you what's required. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Can I tell you that if you can talk someone into heaven, you could also talk them out of heaven? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That there's always an element of faith. It's never just intellect that gets you into the kingdom. It isn't just apologetic. It isn't someone just explaining to you a great scientific argument, though I can probably make a few of them for you. We can talk about the cosmos. We are on Thursday nights, in fact, in the portion of Isaiah that we're in. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. powerful, powerful passage that explains to us there are two different destinies and the choice of which place you go you must make before you exit this planet. Before. This is sealed when you take your last breath. It's immutable once you have passed on. You can't be prayed out of one place. You can't be prayed into the other. And during this time, remember, Jesus is speaking these words, so he has not yet died. So it's important that we break this down to get the understanding of what this is. What is this place called Abraham's bosom? Because in this passage, there are clearly two different places. If you remember in Genesis chapter 25, we're actually told where Abraham is buried. We're told he's buried with his people. But he was buried in the cave of Malpelah. It's a very specific place, it's near Shechem. And so it couldn't be talking about that because only his wife Sarah was buried with him. So who's with Abraham now? Because there are others. There's Lazarus, and they can see each other. They can look across the chasm. It's like, that's not, I don't want to be over there. But there's nothing they can do about exchanging sides. At this time, the name given to this place was Abraham's bosom. And when Abraham died, it would be almost 1,900 years Before those two compartments, one that held the righteous dead and one that held the unrighteous dead, these two places in the abode of the dead, or Sheol, both of them contained souls. You could look at it as this was simply the afterlife. But remember, there was no way for anyone to go to heaven yet because the law couldn't do that, right? There was no sacrifice that was made permanently that took away anyone's sin under the law. It was simply atoned for. On Yom Kippur, those sins were put away to be dealt with later. So everyone that died before Jesus gave his life died in faith waiting for the promise of Messiah that he would one day come and he would one day pay the price and there would be an esponging of the guilt and a taking away of the penalty of it that the debt would one day be paid. But until that time, you had a place that the Bible actually calls paradise. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was talking while he was still alive? You have two thieves on the cross One denied him, one believed in him. What did he say to the one who believed? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Guess where that was? Exactly where Lazarus is in this story. He's in paradise. The good side. The compartment that held the righteous. So who would have been there? Oh, Noah. And Abraham. Isaac. Joshua all these characters of the Bible, anyone who believed, anyone who had faith, you see, you're saved by faith. That results in grace. The grace is what gives you forgiveness of sin. It's always been that people have been saved by faith. The only difference was they didn't receive the fullness of that grace gift until Jesus finally paid the price for their sin on the cross, which in this passage he still hasn't done. He's still alive. He's still walking the earth. He has not been made a sacrifice for our sins yet. So he's speaking about what was at that very moment two compartments that could see one another. One with the likes of Abraham and Adam and Noah and Abel, and one with the likes of this rich man, and no doubt many others. So, what about today? That's probably the question you guys are thinking in your mind. So, what happened to these two places? Now, do we come disembodied spirits now? Do we end up in Sheol? Are we still going to have to wait? Well, the Bible actually tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 the transactionally, what happens at that moment. And it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, amen? Amen. So how did that happen? The book of Ephesians actually tells us, chapter four, beginning in verse seven, it says this, but to each of us grace was given. Now, who's the each of us? That's anyone who believes, right? Paul's writing to Christians that are in Ephesus according to the measure of Christ's gift. Notice it doesn't focus on your works, what you did, how, how you became, became such a great person, a spiritual person, how you, you filled up 400 Samaritan's purse shoe boxes by yourself. <laughs> That's not getting you into heaven. You're not going to show up, look, I did 400 boxes, Lord. You gave, you didn't tithe, you tithe 10.5%. That's not going to get you in either. You actually led someone to Christ, also not getting you in. I actually had a friend who was not saved that was used for a very long time to preach the gospel. and He will tell you this story himself, except he's in heaven now. He said, I wasn't even saved, but I preached the gospel to other people. They got saved before I got saved. He just believed intellectually in the gospel process. And in sharing the word, because the word doesn't return void, people heard the word and got saved. You see, you're saved by grace through faith. Amen? The vehicle is your faith. You believe by faith that Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross, that he was buried in the graves, he raised three days later, he paid the price for your sin. God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and you're believing in his sacrifice, not your own sacrifice. That's why you don't need to crucify yourself. Jesus was crucified for you. So what happened? Here it is. Therefore he says, verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth, and he who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fulfill all things. In other words, when Jesus died, he went down and said hello to Abraham and Noah and Adam and the guy in our story, Lazarus, who, by the way, in John chapter 11, is raised from the dead. I believe it might even be the same guy. So here's this beautiful picture. Jesus said to the thief, today you'll be with me in? Where did Jesus go when he first went? What was he doing on those three days? He's cleaning out Abraham's bosom. And when he was raised, he said, it's time to go. Let's head to heaven. So now all who are absent from the body are present with the Lord. In other words, paradise is empty. People are now in heaven. The Old Testament saints are where everybody else goes when you take your last breath in faith, straight into the presence of the Lord. But what about the other side? Jesus goes and he says, look, it's time to leave. I've paid the price. Your sins are forgiven. You can now stand in the presence of a holy God, completely redeemed. Well, what about the other side where Lazarus is? That's the problem. Because he emptied out paradise, but there was another compartment separated by a chasm. What about them? The unrighteous dead. Literally, the word Hades can be translated hell. You see, one was in paradise, the other was in Hades. One was awaiting further judgment. One was awaiting the price to be paid so that they could go home to heaven. We're actually told that there is still judgment coming. Revelation chapter 20 gives us this picture, verse 11. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heavens fled away from, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, that would be the rich man standing before God, and the books were open, and another book, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book, and the sea gave up her dead who were in it, and death, and check this out, Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were all judged according to his works, and death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. In other words, they're still waiting a far worse death than dying. They're waiting to be cast into the lake of fire. They're literally waiting for God to say, look, you rested and trusted in your works, and they weren't sufficient. Jesus is going to go on and say, People will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did I not do great and mighty things in your name? And he will say, Depart from me, for I have never known you. Why? Because they never believed in him. They just did good things for him. By the works of the flesh, the Apostle Paul writes, is no one justified. You can't get there by your works. It isn't works, it's by believing on the only begotten Son of God. That's the only way to get into heaven. That's the entrance exam, that's the requirement. It's believing by faith that he did for you what you cannot do for yourself. This picture is monumental to our theology. While God is gracious and kind, he is also holy, and he changes not. And those that have been waiting are waiting still until the very last days when finally the Antichrist rises, the world comes unhinged, and Jesus himself comes again a second time, and then he rules and reigns on earth for a thousand years, and then death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. So they're going to be there for a while. At a very minimum, seven years and 1,000 years. Because we haven't been raptured yet. We're still here. So there's still time. So the formerly poor Lazarus is poor no more. The formerly rich man is absolutely destitute. And so we pick up the remainder of this story. You you see, here we see that there's only one kind of dead in Hades now. It's people who've passed without the Lord Jesus, as Savior. It's people who had no public profession of their faith. That's why Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. It's important to have a personal profession of of your faith in Christ. Not that that by itself saves you, but it's a testimony of who you are. That's why we baptize people publicly. It's a sign of faith. They are making a public profession of their faith before hundreds of other people. You see, you can live a religious life and still be awaiting judgment. You can go to church your whole life without believing in Jesus. I've talked to people that spent a very long time going to church who did not know the Lord. They thought church was going to save them. And notice here the rich man who also died and was buried. Let me give you a little secret here. When you take your last breath and you don't know the Lord, the next thing that's likely going to happen is someone is going to write an obituary about you. And if you're really, 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 really super famous, you're probably going to get about a quarter of a page in a newspaper somewhere. And it's going to list all your accomplishments, it's going to have your degrees, it's going to Tell of every philanthropic thing you ever did. Maybe you might even get a biopic movie produced about you. You might have all kinds of things and niceties that are said about you. But if you die without Jesus, you're going to spend eternity in Hades. So you may have had everything here, but you'll have nothing there. This is Jesus speaking. This is not Jeff. Just because we got a couple of similar letters in our names. (laughs) This is Jesus, okay? Lazarus, of all people, reclining there in Abraham's bosom, Waiting for the Lord to pay the price, knowing. And notice the simple things. Could you have them bring us some cold water? It's kind of hot over here. But notice what Jesus says: They can't come. It's not possible. The gulf can't be crossed. It it isn't a line in the sand that you can simply step over. It's a chasm that can only be crossed by the cross of Christ. It's a wound so deep that only the blood of Christ can heal that wound. The rich man is now a beggar and the beggar is now a rich man. Do you see the role reversal? One had everything in this life and now has nothing in eternity, and the other had nothing in this life and has everything in eternity. Those two choices are still the only two choices. There are no other choices, church. There's no such thing as purgatory. That is a fabrication of the Catholic Church. There's no such thing as soul sleep. That is a fabrication of Seventh-day Adventism. There is no such thing as praying your relatives out of a lower level of heaven. That is a fabrication of the Mormon Church. Jesus himself said, they're in two places and there is a gulf between and you can't change sides. That destiny is sealed. In other words, you have to choose where you live eternally. You personally have to choose. That's why Revelation 22, almost the end of the Bible, says what it says. You're either holy or you're not holy. You're either righteous or you're not righteous. You're an in and out, a saint or ain't. You're a sheep or a goat. You you can't go, man, I messed up. You know, me personally, I wish that were the case. I really do. Me as a human being, knowing the wretchedness of my own spiritual condition before I met Jesus, I I would love to tell you, well, you know, 2,000 years, you just spend a couple thousand years in in Hades and that's going to all work out in the end. The Bible doesn't say that. I would be lying to you. I would be making something up, literally. I'd be relying on something other than the Bible to give you a false sense of security. You cannot live how you want to live and then ask God to bail you out later. Sorry. Some of you are going, I wish I hadn't come to church today. The son remembered Abraham thunders. That man was looking at his life and remembering all the good things he had. may have been that he walked by Lazarus laying at his gate going, I wonder how long I'm going to have to put up with this. Man, I got a homeless guy next to my front gate. I can't believe it. What are people going to think? As much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me, Jesus said. Be careful. Be careful how you think about homeless people because they might have a bigger house than you in heaven. Think about it. Think about it. You don't know their story. I don't know their story. But I know this. Heaven squares away inequity. There's no foot traffic between heaven and hell. At that time, those two compartments, there's an open wound that remains to this day. That's why the book of Romans declares so loudly and proudly that God actually is going to extract a payment someday from everyone if you do not believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 1 says the wrath of God Literally, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You might want to remember that if you're one of those people who you can do whatever you want. But you don't need Jesus. And I'm not trying to scare you into heaven. I'm trying to scare you out of hell. Because there's a choice. And you've got to make it. I can't make it for you. I would make the choice to save everyone. That's, that's what I would do. But I can't make that choice for you. Only you can make that choice for you. That open wound that pleads for the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ to quench the wrath of God remains to this day. That chasm is still there. Your unsaved loved ones are facing that same chasm. Don't, don't let time pass where you just say, well, you know, there'll be tomorrow. There's no more tomorrows left for my mom, there's no more days left. I pray for the grace of God somehow to have reached into her life in the last moments of life, but she made no public profession of faith, and she died, so far as I know, without Christ. Don't wait. Don't wait. Tomorrow is not promised to anyone, today is the day of your salvation. It's not promised tomorrow. I don't even know what I'm going to wear tomorrow. We don't even know if we're going to be able to do church tomorrow. I'm telling you, today is the day to make that decision. Today's the day. God's not going to demand payment twice. He's not going to re-crucify Jesus His sacrifice was once and for all. All who believe will be saved. But all who don't believe won't be saved. The Old Testament, you were dying waiting for Messiah. Today we die knowing that Messiah has come. That's why the gospel is so central. That's why we teach the word here and nothing else. There's nothing else I can teach you can save you, save that Christ died for you, and want you to know him personally. It is true that Jesus paid it all, At all to him I owe, everything. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. He did, not me, not my decades of ministry not my knowledge of the word of God, not my understanding of Jewish history, world politics, end times, creation science, none of those things can save you. It is only the cross of Christ. And you must believe to be saved. I can tell you this, that rich man Believed in the preaching of the word after the fact. Oh, I know he believed, but it was too late. God, through his son Jesus, at this time says, Look, you already have all you need to know. You have Moses and you have the prophets. That's enough. There was enough contained within the book of Isaiah by itself for them to completely understand God's plan of salvation. Know what Messiah would do, how he would get here. You put in all the prophets and you find out he's named by name where he's going to be born, who will be his lineage. There's 485 specific pieces of information in the Old Testament that Jesus made good on when he was here on this earth. There's enough information. The question is do you believe? Do you believe? That's the only thing, the only thing separating the rich man in Hades and Lazarus in paradise was believing in the Savior. That's it. Don't miss this opportunity right now. I'm going to ask you to stand. And I'm going to ask you to do some business with Jesus right now. Now, I know many of you have already made that profession. I can look and see a lot of faces that I know, even though I can only see you from the bridge of your nose up. But I believe there may be some today that are thinking they can square this away later. In Jesus' name, you can't. You can't. If you will believe on Him, you will be saved. The Bible says that. And so I want to give those who don't know Him an opportunity right now to be saved. It isn't a religious thing, it's a relational thing. It's you telling God you can't fix yourself, it's you believing you need a Savior, it's you understanding that Christ died for your sin. And I'm going to ask you, if you're here and you're saved, you know the Lord, I want you to pray right now for anyone who's here, anyone who's watching online, anyone who may see this later. Because we're going to make the offer of the gospel right now available. Would you bow your heads with me? If you're here today and you're saying, Pastor Jeff, I don't know if I died right now that I'd go to heaven. If that's you and you want to change your destination because there's only two, Then I want you to raise your hand right now. We're going to pray together. Wherever you are, I can see pretty much everyone here. If you don't know Jesus, you haven't ever invited him into your life to be your Savior and Lord, just simply slip up your hand. Anyone at all? Don't wait. I see that hand in the back. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? You confess him before men, he'll confess you before the Father. So just raise your hand. Let's pray. Let's do this thing right now. Make that choice. We're going to pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. I, I pray for these that have raised their hands. And I would ask that they would pray this after me. Father in heaven, I believe that I'm a sinner. And I know I need a Savior. I was destined for hell, but I want to go to heaven. And so I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on Calvary's cross, that you paid the price for my sin, that you're offering me forgiveness right now, and I want to receive that forgiveness with a glad heart. Write my name in that book of life that determines my eternity. Help me to live a sinless life for you. Help me to change the things that need to be changed. Part your Holy Spirit. I give you my life. I want you to be my Savior and also my Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message.